Welcome back to the Charged Up Show. In this episode, we interviewed Steve Seftel. Steve is a former hockey pro who played four games in the NHL for the Washington Capitals. Steve is now known as a Canadian author for his book Shattered Ice, which is a great read about his life of hockey as well as his struggles. If you want a copy of Shattered Ice, you can find it at your local bookstore as well as on Amazon. Hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome back. Uh... This is a, another great episode. We have a really cool guest today. He's a former NHL player and uh, now a, a pretty popular author uh, with his new book, Shattered Ice. Please welcome Steve Seftel. Thank you for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you on the Charged Up show. Thank yeah. you. There's a Charged Up podcast. Yeah. yeah. Either, Either way. <laughs> yeah. So really how appreciate you, you coming. Yeah. So how are you doing? Very good. Um, yeah, it's been a hot summer, um, so I've been enjoying the warmth and uh, that time of year. Even though it's strange times for all of us, absolutely, definitely. Kind of getting used to uh, social distancing and, and going to like my. I went down to Long Point on Lake Erie last week, but still, I thought people were being very respectful and social distancing. We could still go on the beach and. Uh, um, yeah, it's just a different time. That's something none of us have really lived through. So we're getting used to that still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think someone uh, someone put it perfectly, saying it's the longest, shortest summer ever. Feels like yeah, that. good point. That's a good way to say it for sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, for, oh yeah, for everyone listening, the NHL's officially started today. I, I don't know. This video is coming out sometime this week, but I, I, I was pretty mad that the Pittsburgh Philly game wasn't on Canadian TV. Oh yeah, couldn't watch it, but the Leaf game's on at eight. So, uh, what's that like for you, Stephen? Like seeing that come? It's so weird. Uh, I saw something saying like, imagine hearing the headlines a year ago. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a strange time. And again, you know, we talked about COVID nineteen, like the social distancing, having hockey being played in the end of July is very strange uh, for most players. This would be your off season. You'd be training getting ready for late August. Um, you're really, at this point, you'd be in the middle of your training and totally not in a playing mode, in a playing mindset. So yeah. I think for these players, I mean, their seasons all started, their seasons are starting up, but it's like they all missed the playoffs because the season started in March or yeah. ended in March. And that's often when the regular season is getting close to ending. So I think it's going to be a real challenge for these guys mentally and physically yeah it's definitely gonna be interesting to see how they play and kind of adapt or it's like two hub cities right it's like one in toronto and then one's in vancouver i believe both in canada so, so edmonton's yeah. the other uh, host city yeah um, i think the bubble is going to be a challenge for the players um guys certainly are used to after games keeping their own schedule and going to the places they like to go to and now they're all going to be hunkered down in the bubble and away from friends and family and restricted on where they can and can't go. And that's, that's a tough challenge too, especially for the teams that go deep. For sure. Yeah, definitely. So we have a lot to talk about in this, uh, in this interview, but let's start right at the beginning of your hockey career in Kitchener. Yeah, sure. Uh, I grew up in Kitchener, Ontario, as you mentioned, and I have a chapter in my book, Shattered Ice. The first chapter is called Queen's Mount Arena. And uh, many of us, or maybe all of us who started as ho- young hockey players in Canada, probably remember the first rink you, you skated at. 
And then for me, it was Queens Mount Arena in Kitchener. Um, I was a graduate of Kitchener minor hockey, um, played for some great teams. Back then, Kitchener was uh, green and gold. We weren't the junior Rangers yet. I came many years after my time, but I played for some terrific coaches along the way. And certainly uh, I have fond, really fond memories of playing minor hockey in Kitchener. Yeah, that's great. Um, in 1984, you played minor midget. And what was that minor career experience? And what was the emphasis on like the draft year that year? I'll tell you an, a story, another good story that I, another one I knew would be in my book. I played two years. So I played as an underage my first year of my draft eligible year in midget hockey. And that season, I got mononucleosis at Christmas. <laughs> I talk about that in the book and that pretty much shut me down for the next couple months. Came back for the Ontario regional championships which were in the PN. We we won the OMHA and represented our the OMHA in the Air Canada Cup regionals. I was not drafted that year and I tell funny in the book I said after not being drafted as a minor um, I mean it would have been a, a long shot that back then in the OHL draft the uh, underage players, each team could take three and it had to be in the first five rounds. So you had to be in those top end guys. But after that end of that season, when I didn't get drafted, I made three decisions with myself consciously. And one was after mono, I said, no more girlfriends for the next 12 months. <laughs> and then I said, I would promise to getting stronger physically. And the other big thing I did, which was heartbreaking is I stopped playing lacrosse. I was a lacrosse player growing up and I love that sport okay. as much as hockey, but those were the three things I did to kind of commit to, to being drafted and, and having a successful midget season. And then what, you, what I'd like, what I'd like to wonder is what was it like? It's, it's a bit too crazy. I think on how it is like, I've been through it and the draft, the draft year, there's so much emphasis. And what was it like back then compared to how it is now? very different than it is now. I mean, now with the Ontario hockey league, you've got the online draft back then the OHL draft was much like the national hockey league draft. They usually took place at the North York civic center and the teams would show up and they'd all have tables just like the NHL draft and their scouts and GMs and coaches would be there. And the players were all up in the stands, just like you see in the NHL draft and they'd go to the podium and start calling out names and it's very, it was very similar, um, very nerve-wracking. I mean, again, we're, you're there, your expectations are high, and yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough day for. Uh, I was fortunate to be uh, selected by the the Kingston Canadians. I was picked uh, 31st overall in the third round. It was first pick of the third round. Okay. What I like the story I tell on that day for my my personal stories. I was rated as far as you know ratings don't mean everything but it is a used by central scouting and teams as a, a measurement i was rated 16th overall going into that draft so there was only 15 teams in the ohl at that time so i remember thinking to myself i might be a potentially i could be a first rounder with so then i didn't go in the first round i i thought for sure i would go in the second round which i didn't and then just because i was starting to get a little uptight i was the first pick of the third round so I didn't have to sweat it out too much, too long because of that. So I, yeah. And uh, you know, I, I didn't even talk. I talked to half the teams in the league. Kingston wasn't one of them. 
So that was interesting too. Of all the teams I talked to, I got picked by a team that didn't even communicate with me. Yeah, that's always interesting. And how was like your mindset going through it all? Like, were you surrounded by you know your family, or like was it just nerve wracking, like just waiting for the call or email or whatever, like to let you know that you're in? Yeah, I was very nervous. A lot of my teammates from my Kitchener Green Shirts team were there. They were in attendance. We all sat together. I remember, and our parents were sitting down below. Matter of fact, my parents' best friends from from Brantford, Ontario, even joined us that day. So just to add a little bit, you know, it is a nerve pressure filled day, and you do you desperately want to hear your name called, but, yeah. even though you're all sitting there quietly with your arms folded, uh, very waiting patiently. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it can take a lot of patience, and it doesn't always work out well for everybody. But I guess the message from that is it's only one step, and there's plenty of stories of guys who weren't drafted or who took different routes to get to the highest level. So it's, it's not, you can't put all your eggs in that basket. Like there's other ways to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. I was listening to another interview which you were in and you're talking about your experience of going, going to Kingston with the big blue suitcase. And uh, it was all like a whole nerve wracking experience on its own. There's too. Yeah, I'll never forget that day. It's another very vivid memory I had. I'd been to Kingston twice in minor hockey for tournaments, but those are short weekends. I didn't know a whole lot about the city, and my parents drove me down there the day before training camp started. And we got, I walked into the arena with my gear, and then I had this big, blue, really conspicuous-looking suitcase with my whole life packed in it. And I just remember walking into the dressing room, and all the veterans were sitting around talking to each other, you know, about summers and things guys talk about. And I walked in just the new face with this blue suitcase and just felt very awkward. And uh, it was, I just wanted to ditch it. And I remember thinking to myself, why did I come in with this thing? Uh, I should have just left it in the trunk. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's tough because you're moving away from home. In my case, being in Kingston, my parents couldn't visit me on weekends. I guess Kingston's three and a half, four hour drive. And so they weren't coming on weekends. And that same day, you know, they dropped me off around two. They might've stayed a couple hours at 7 PM. I was with my new billets meeting these people for the very first time. And on the top of that, the next day you got to get up for the first day of training camp. Plus you're going to new school. I mean, there's a lot to juggle and uh, you're only 17 years old. So you learn to, you grow up fast. Yeah, definitely. So what was your junior hockey experience like? We don't want to stay in junior two more. We obviously want to jump into pro, but um, it's hard to get specific with it, obviously, because it's hard to tell. We, we don't know firsthand. We didn't get to watch you play or anything like that. But what was your experience like in junior hockey? The best team we had was my first year. Uh, that team really had a shot to win it all. We lost in the the what would be the quarterfinals. Um, one one win of overtime win away from, uh, or we lost in overtime, knocked us out, and would have put us in the semifinals. Uh, the team that won the, the league that year was the Guelph Platers. I, they won the Memorial Cup as well, 1986 Memorial Cup. Oh, wow. I'll give you one infamous story as well. It's not too flattering, but. It's, uh, it's in the record book still. That was my first year. My worst year was my last year junior. And it's a chapter in the book. It's called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. 
And that team, we had some good players, Brian Fogarty, Scott Pearson, Mike Fissette. But uh, due to injuries, and, I, and you, you know, if you read the book, there's a lot of factors which I expose. But that team lost 28 games in a row. Wow. And it was a, an OHL record that still remains to this day. And uh, the only reason that streak ended is because we ran out of games. I believe that. <laughs> so we yes. didn't lose. Not only did we lose 28 in a row, we lost our last 28. Jeez. Pretty I got when I think back about it now, I, I it almost seems impossible in any sport to lose 28 times. Yeah, but um, <laughs> and which I kind of so. And interestingly enough, little little tidbit for you too, which I also talk about in that chapter is the team was sold, which is another factor in the whole story of that that season. We were sold uh, around Jan mid January, and that was the last year for the Kingston Canadians. The new owner changed the name to the Kingston Raiders and they wore black and silver for one season. And then he was pretty much driven out of town after one year. He was going to move the franchise. It was saved by a local group who purchased the team and renamed it the Frontenacs. And they went back to their traditional Frontenacs Boston Bruins colors through an affiliation they had many years before. And that's where they still are today with with those colors and that name. Cool. So with your teams, the uh, Kingston Canadians and the uh, Baltimore Skipjacks, they're not even there anymore. Yeah, I, I love the defunct, whatever team it is, California Golden Seals, Cleveland <laughs> Barons. I mean, um, you go around the OHL. When I played in the OHL, we had the North Bay Centennials, which is a different organization they moved. I think they relocated to Saginaw. That franchise. I know there's a team back in North Bay, but it's not yeah. that Centennial yeah. franchise. Um, but yeah, I love the defunct teams. So the Skipjacks. I'll just give you a quick story. They were they were affiliated the year before the Caps moved in there. They were independent. Prior to that, they were affiliated with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and then the Capitals jumped in there, and it was a nice uh, agreement because. Baltimore, Washington are only about an hour apart. So when players got recalled or demoted, it was nice and easy. You could still live in your apartment and just go the other way on Highway 95. And it was a good relationship. Uh, They were in there. The Caps were there for about six years. And then shortly after, the year after, two years after I retired, that team moved, relocated to Portland, Portland, Maine. That's a a good point because I think we had Justin Auger I don't know if you've heard of him, but yeah. a local guy, and he was with, he played two games in the NHL with LA, the rest of his career AHL East Coast, and he said that uh, before Manchester Monarchs had, had moved to Ontario, in, uh, in Ontario, California, yeah, it was a six-hour flight between their farm team and NHL team, so sometimes yeah. would, they would need guys, but they couldn't get them out in time to play the game that night, or whatever, so yeah. guys wouldn't NHL games just because they're on the other side of the country true and another that's so true and another bonus for us with the relationship with baltimore and washington was that the capitals invited us to any home game we wanted to go to like they kind of wanted to create a good a team atmosphere as an organization so mm-hmm. anytime we wanted to go to a home game just to absorb it and be a part of it we were welcome to come so in my case whenever gretzky or lemieux played 
and I was had a free night, I'd drive down there and just go watch. Because those are kind of the two guys I idolized before I turned pro. Definitely. Now, you, we, we touched on it now, but so you got drafted to Washington, um, and then you played for, in the AHL, the their affiliated team. So what was that whole experience like um, getting drafted to the NHL? Well, I got drafted in 1986 in the second round, 40th overall. The draft that year was at the Montreal Forum, so what a thrill to go to the Forum. And you were talking, we were talking earlier about the OHL draft. The NHL draft is, as I say in the book, is the OHL draft on steroids. It's just so much more intense. There's much, there's media, there's just so much, so many more people and there's just an intensity about it. So it's one of the most memorable days of my career for sure. And, um, you know, I look back on that fondly. Absolutely. So I still had two more years of junior after I was drafted. I did 10 training camp for those two years. When I turned to pro, um, when I turned to pro, I, the Capitals were actually affiliated with the Binghamton Whalers at the time. Yep. Okay. And they shared that team with Hartford. So uh, half the players were Hartford, half were Washington. So that was, I went there and I played three games for the Binghamton Whalers after my final year in Kingston. Then the following summer, is when the Capitals moved into Baltimore. And then it's a, a big adjustment. I turned professional and you got to find a place to live. Um, you're now cooking for yourself. I talk about this in the book too. Um, I have an infamous story about one of my famous uh, meatloafs I made that made some of my teammates ill. <laughs> um, but, you know, in junior hockey, your billets cook for you. So it, you never have to worry about food because you've got your billets to lean on. But when you're 20 years old and you turn pro, now you're always fending for yourself. And I guess the biggest adjustment, I would say, is managing time. Because we practice in the morning, usually from 10 to 12, maybe 9 to 11. And then you got the rest of the day off. And it's a lot of, sometimes it's a lot of time to fill when you're not playing a lot of games. It depends on the schedule, but that's when you can get yourself into some trouble when you yeah. got a lot of hours and you don't spend them maybe wisely. Mm -hmm. One thing that I'm, uh, I'm really curious about too, is there's one thing moving from Kitchener to Kingston, but it's a whole new transition going to, uh, from Kingston all the way to Baltimore, even Washington. Did you, did you ever get a sense of like homesickness or that must've been hard even moving out of the country so young too? I was, when I first left, at the beginning of the season, I was, it was a tough drive down there. I certainly remember that. Uh, it was an anxious drive. And um, I do remember shedding a tear on that drive. Like it, it was just an overwhelming feeling, absolutely. But as far as being in the U.S. goes, I was really excited about that opportunity. Um, yeah, I certainly was. It seemed like a bit of an adventure. And, the, you know, the U.S., it's a great country. You know, they're having with COVID they're struggling now too, but it's a great place to live in Baltimore, Washington, that whole area is beautiful. There's lots to do. So it, I was excited about that. And if uh, turning pro and being in that area was the weather's nice down there. Um, it only snowed down there once or twice a winter. It's pretty warm. I mean, it gets a little, it gets cool, but it, we didn't see a lot of snow. So 
I was excited about going to the U.S. for sure. Was it a bit intimidating moving? Baltimore's known for having uh, for having a high murder rate. Was that like a bit scary? Like <laughs> oh, when I hear Baltimore, that's the first thing I think about personally. Um, was that some going being young, living on your own? Yeah, well, we lived in this. We as far as our living arrangements go, most of the team lived in a city called Columbia, so it'd be like kind of like being in Milton, uh, like twenty minutes, yeah, yeah. kind of like Milton to Toronto. Not so. Right. That was more of a bedroom community, so we weren't downtown in the actual inner city too often. But I do tell a funny story um, about going to an ACDC concert in Baltimore, and I was the last guy on my team to leave because some of the guys cut out early. And this is my rookie year. We had just pretty much arrived, and I didn't know the city at all. And I got lost right downtown (laughs) in a pretty uh, challenging, tough area. And I was nervous. I will, I do remember being nervous driving around in my 87 Firebird, <laughs> attracting attention with my car, maybe. And, but I was nervous. I didn't know where I was. The city's big. There's there's highways everywhere down there, too. Right. So and there are crisscrossing. So I do <laughs> remember a little bit of that <laughs> night being a little stressed out. But uh, overall, like I said, we didn't, we weren't, we went into play and practice. And most of the time we returned to Columbia. And really, it's it's a bedroom community, very comfortable. So yeah, I enjoyed that area a great deal. Now, a lot of the time in your book, too, you mention how a bunch of coaches influenced your life in a really good way. Would you be able to mention or elaborate on some of those experiences with your coaches? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll tell you a couple of stories. Uh, this one is remarkable just because of time. So my nine-year-old, I talk in the book about my nine-year-old coach, minor Adam AAA. His name was Larry Lyman. And he taught our team, he called it the four Ds, desire, determine, desire, determination, dedication, and discipline. He called those his four Ds. Okay. And I mentioned that in my book because, anyway, they're words to live by as a person and as an athlete, but it always struck me especially as an adult, that I remembered those things from a nine-year-old hockey coach. So whatever impression he made on me as a nine-year-old boy stuck for a long, long time and still does today. And that really told, tells me, and I coach myself now, and you, you realize like that tells you what kind of impression you have on young people and young hockey players, young athletes when you're coaching, teaching. They, they remember you for years after and uh so moving forward um i would say my favorite coach was doug mcclain um you know he's very famous hockey media figure now through uh the time he's done in broadcasting his coaching career and managing career but also the last 20 years or so as he's been in broadcasting yep i had doug in baltimore um i'll give you another just little tidbit of that story Brian Murray and Doug McLean were the coaches of the Washington Capitals. Brian's brother, Terry, was our coach in Baltimore. In January of 90, yeah, January 90, David Poyle, the general manager of the Capitals, fired Brian Murray, and he hired his brother, Terry, from the minors. So I'm sure that made for some interesting conversation between the two brothers. But, I mean, they they were great friends, but... Yeah, what a story. And anyway, Doug was now kind of left out in the cold. So 
plus the skipjacks needed a coach. So Mr. Poyle sent Doug McLean to the minors to coach the Baltimore team in the American Hockey League. And I just connected with him right away. I always often struggled with my anxiety as a player. And Doug has a master's degree in educational psychology. And I, I just feel like the way he coached really resonated with me. And some coaches just have know how to pressure buttons and get the most out of a player. And I connected with him right away. And under him, I played the best hockey, some of the best hockey I've played in the American League and started to really turn things around. And he has this infectious laugh that you never tire of. I mean, you can see some of that on when he was on TV with Sports Central. When he laughs, it's, he makes you laugh. <laughs> and um, he was a great guy, and I enjoyed playing through for him. I always said I'd run through walls for him. Like, can do one of those coaches you'd do anything for. Um, and the, so I'd have to say he was my favorite coach. But all your coaches give you something you, you can take away, and that I want that kind of point to be made too. Like, every coach gives you something, and like I said just a few seconds ago, uh, when I coach myself. I'm very aware that that what I say and do and how I act and how I lead is a direct influence on the, the players. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very beneficial, like especially for me or for any of these guys or anyone listening, like especially if, if you're in a sport when you're young, like a coach can really develop kind of your future of how, how you think of things and like how you play the game. And it's, it's a really like kind of, developing um developing way like in, in a positive way to to make you a better person and player overall so yeah that's, that's absolutely great i'll give you one more little coaching story and this one's a little more uh, relevant for today's coaches too so barry trotz yep. coach of the uh, new york islanders okay. his first professional coaching job was with the baltimore skipjacks of the american hockey league oh no way yeah so and I was on that team. Um, so when he was our assistant coach in my one of my uh, second, maybe my second last season. And then our coach's name was Rob Laird. Rob got fired by Mr. Poyle. And then uh, he elevated Barry Trotz, who was the assistant to the head coach in Baltimore. And then he was head coach for that year, the following year. And then that's when the team moved to Portland, Maine. And he won a Calder Cup there with a really, like, you did a great job with that group. Won a Calder Cup, and then the next thing, not too long after that, he got his opportunity with the Nashville Predators as their first coach. And he's been going at it ever since. He's been in the league ever since. So that was, uh, but his trivia question, his first professional gig as a co head coach with the Baltimore Skipjacks. That's great. That's pretty cool. He was, he won the Jack Adams last year, did he? Not? Uh I think so. If not, he's been in the running the last couple yeah. of seasons. Yep. Yeah. Two or the last three or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think three of the last three. He, he was in yeah. You're probably right. Before. I think I heard his name recently again for this yep, year. He's, right? he's in, yeah. He's predicted to be in. I don't know if they made it official yeah. or not. So let's anyway, jump right into your NHL. Okay. Speaking of him, he won the cup with Washington recently. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Let's, let's hear. Uh, I'm sure you have a a couple stories for us, but let's hear the moment you finally found out you're going to get to play in the NHL. Yeah, that moment came uh, in January of 1991. And uh, we were in Portland. As a matter of fact, we were in Portland, Maine, the Skipjacks uh, 
playing the then Maine Mariners, the Boston Bruins were the uh, parent of the team back of Maine back then. And uh, after the game, Coach Rob Laird, our head coach, called me into a, a room next door, and he said, "Congratulations, you're going to Washington." So it was going to be my first recall. We were in Maine, Portland, Maine, so we had to take the bus back to Baltimore. And then, uh, as I say in my book, like Highway 95 joins Baltimore and Washington. It's a major uh, interstate. Right. If you're going to Baltimore, you had to go north. If you're going to Washington, you're going south. So it was really exciting to be, exciting to be driving south <laughs> on I-95 to the Capitol Center instead of north of the Baltimore Arena. So that was cool. I bet. Um, I tell this other story. I'll tell you a couple of quick ones. My first practice with the team then was the Caps used to practice in Virginia just across the bridge. And we lined up to do a two-on-one drill early in this practice before our game the next day. And I lined up to do the two-on-one drill with Dino Cicerelli. He's a over 500 goal scorer in the NHL. Yeah. I believe he's a Hall of Famer. And... Um, we line up to do a two-on-one, and Terry Murray, the coach, blows the whistle, and he takes off like he shot out of a cannon. And I was just pumping my legs as hard as I could to keep <laughs> up to him. And I just realized at the end of that two-on-one how hard these guys work in practice. And I remember we practiced for about 45 minutes, but they went as hard as they could. Like There was no coasting, all business, serious, 100%. And it, it was so obvious. It was painfully obvious that you've got to learn quick or you aren't going to be there long. So it was a great lesson from Dino. And then one of my famous stories that I knew would be in my book was so the, the next day we played in Detroit and that's my first NHL game. And I always share, I love sharing this story. Um, so it's in Detroit and I mentioned Doug McLean and Brian Murray. So Doug, Doug was let go by the Capitals at the end of the season when he was in Baltimore and Brian was rehired after the Caps let him go by the Detroit Red Wings the following season, and he brought his right-hand man, Doug, along with him as his assistant coach. So Brian and my old coaches in Washington are now in Detroit. Hmm. So I get called up, first NHL games in Detroit. Terry Murray's on our bench. Brian Murray and Doug McLean are on the Detroit bench. Like There's just so much drama. So I'm skating around to warm up. And I see Doug McLean on the visitor's bench. So I was so nervous. I thought I was skating over ski moguls. And I was trying to calm myself down. So I went across the center red line and I thought, I'll just say hi to him. And maybe he'll say, way to go, kid. Or you did a good job. Congratulations. Something to calm me down. So I, we make eye contact and I stare into him. And he says, hey, Seth, I told Probert you're the goon called up from Baltimore. <laughs> Mm. And uh, I was not the goon from Baltimore by no stretch. <laughs> so I did a double take and I was like, you said what to who huh. kind of thing. Then I just thought, okay, I'm not going near him anymore. I'm going to just stay away from that. Bench. <laughs> we go back to the dressing room after warm up, and coach Murray says, the starting forward line is Hunter Septel Drews. So I'm starting with Dale Hunter and John Drews and I'm a left winger. So I'm out there for the national anthem. And of course, many players will tell you, they always want to know who they're up against, who's on the other side. Well, I know very well that Bob Probert's a right winger. So when I'm out there for the anthem there, I see 24 white on the other blue line. So we are going to be lining up shoulder to shoulder for the draw. 
And now I start reeling again. I'm like, holy shit, maybe he did tell him I'm a goofball. <laughs> um, long story short is that we, he did bump me in the offensive zone almost right off the draw. There was a dump in, hard around, came to my wing. I chipped it out. He bumped my shoulder. And I remember thinking, okay, here it comes. And it was just a, you know, it was just a bump. But I, there, he was just, Mac was just pulling my chain as it turned out. Yeah. But I mean, I didn't know. I was just, I was just, it was just kind of like Russian roulette for me. Okay, then, yeah. So that was a, that was a great story. We won that game in overtime. It's just one of those memorable things you'll never forget. I'd like to, I'd like to ask you, but a couple guys on this team that had awesome success uh, in uh, in hockey, but also outside, right? You had Nick Kiprios and Dale Hunter. Yeah. Was there something um, Dale Hunter and uh, his brother have created the best the best organization in the CHL easily was like there's something about him did, did, did you that's what I always wonder is do, could you tell that he was kind of more of a coach player and he was think he thought differently than everyone else that you could see that success in the future yeah because Dale Hunter and Mark for that matter who I, I didn't get to know as well but he was in Washington briefly um but Dale in particular, I got to know pretty good from him and I being in the organization together. He was a complete leader. Like he's the guy you would lead into battle. And he was one of those players who would never ask you to do anything he wasn't willing to do. But he understood the game. He played all he played all situations, five on five, power play, penalty killing. He's tough as nails, do anything to win. So, I mean, he has all those leadership qualities that you would expect in a really good coach. And I think he just, you know, with his longevity, he's seen everything. He's been around the game for so many years and played in so many big games. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't surprised he became a coach, but he's the ultimate leader. I mean, as from a player's perspective, he was a guy you would love to follow into battle and all of us say, like, the other teams, he's one of those players, too, that the other teams hated. You know, you've got a guy on your team that everybody hates, but you would say you'd love to have him on your team. Yeah. He was that kind of guy. They're just class class guys who know the sport. You know, they come from, uh, a, you know, that just good family and strong family and made of the right stuff. He's just a great leader. Nick Kiprios, I will say about Nick, I was never surprised when he got into to TV, oh, oh, yeah. radio, radio or television. He was always the most vocal uh, guy in the room, and he was uh, he was always a jokester, and very like a very vocal. Always getting guys going, you know, joking around with the team. Um, I was not surprised at all, and uh, and I'm not surprised that he's been really successful with it. But also a great, uh, a, an excellent leader, tough as nails. Um, he was a scorer in junior. I think if you check out his stats, he scored it's 59 or 60 goals okay. in that somewhere in that range with this, the North Bay Centennials. And then he realized when he got to pro, like he had to find his role, and he started to play a bit more of that physical style where he was, uh, you know, bump and grind, finish your checks, and he started to use the fists to cost a lot more. Yeah, he, he was a tough guy, but again, a real heart and soul player. But I was not surprised he got into TV and radio, and that he's done really well with it. I that one I might have even predicted, or if you bet me, 
<laughs> I would have took the bet that, that Nick would end up in TV at some point in his career when he was done playing. Yeah, yeah. And he's still doing it, and he's got a new show out now that he's doing himself uh, on YouTube. And oh, well. He's got Doug McLean still helping him. Like, they're a great uh, They're a great duo on Hockey Central, and it was sad to see them go. Yeah. But uh, not to turn the mood sour, so to say, but you went through a pretty serious knee injury um, playing pro. Would you be able to run us through how that affected your career and your mindset too? Yeah, I think uh, my first knee injury happened in junior. I think if I can look back on it, the biggest mistake we made, or as a between myself and doctors, and I mean, when it happened, I tore my ACL when I was as a second year junior. I didn't even know what an anterior cruciate was, an anterior cruciate ligament. We did. They didn't do surgery. They did rehab. And one thing about ligaments is they never heal. If it's torn, it's torn forever. Or bone. If you break a bone, it heals. And they say sometimes stronger. Hmm. You tear a ligament. It's just going to get worse over time, as with wear and tear. So, what really cost me dearly was after tearing my ACL at 18. At age 23, when I was probably playing my best hockey. Um, I needed to have it repaired as a, a season ending surgery. That was uh, in May of 91. But kind of the, uh, the biggest blow was when, so I had nine months of rehabilitation and that went quite well. I worked really hard. It's very tedious rehabilitation. Came back to play in February of 92. And I started in, off again in Baltimore and 18 games in, I'll never forget it, up in Cape Breton playing against the Cape Breton Oilers at the time. Uh, I tore my other ACL in my right knee. And I don't know, I call that, kind of call that, the, it turned out to be the death blow. Um, mentally, I didn't deal with it well. Physically, I didn't deal with it well. And uh, my career was over um, about six or seven months after that. It was definitely from your book too. It sounded like it was an emotional time in your life. Because uh, things weren't things weren't going the way you wanted, so to speak. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge there, and look, I can look, reflect back on it now, is I didn't know how to ask for help. Twenty-four years old, um, you think you're a lot older and wiser than your years, and I didn't know how to reach out for help. I was struggling also mentally with my anxiety. And uh, I have panic disorder that I've only since been diagnosed with in the last couple of years. And I finally got some treatment for that. And because I was keeping that, you know, that stigma, I was keeping that inside. I wasn't, you know, nobody was talking mental health back then. So right. I didn't share it. I didn't want anybody to know. And I just, just kind of imploded inside because I wasn't dealing with what I was feeling and going through because I didn't ask for help, I tried to deal with it myself, and that was a, kind of a recipe for disaster. And I ended up leaving uh, Washington in December of 92, still under contract, and it really made no sense. I just kind of I left and went home. They were still paying me when I went home till the end of that season. I let my contract expire, and I didn't go back to playing hockey. Wow. Yeah. It was a tough time. It was a tough time. I'm sure. I'm sure it's a big decision as well, like deciding to get the surgery for it as well, right? Because I know 
some people, you know, hesitate on that or they try the rehab, but it always doesn't, you know, fully, fully work or heal for you. So was that a big decision for you as well? It was a huge decision for sure. Um, I find now my experiences, they err on the side of caution. And if someone needs to have something fixed, they'll more likely shut you down and fix it. Yeah. Because as I said, over time, those things, whether shoulders, knees, elbows, wrists, they just, if it's ligament, soft tissue, because of the wear and tear of the sport, it usually declines in, in your health and to lengthen your career, you should probably have it fixed. And, but it was, they are tough decisions. I got, when I had the surgery at 23, I was begging them not to do it. Yeah. Cause I have in my mind, I was thinking, what do you mean? I've played like this for five years. I wore a brace, a pretty large cumbersome Lennox till knee brace. And I thought, no way. Like, I'm playing my best hockey. And now you, you're telling me I need surgery. I don't you know. <laughs> Kind of a small incident during a play, uh, a game, a playoff game, and doctor said you really should have this fixed. And I, I resisted initially, and I mean, looking back, that was the right decision. But at the time, I was just I was having a hard time dealing with it. No, yeah. it's it's an unfortunate thing, but uh, it definitely it's a case of one door closes and another one opens, right? Like you you were able to. And I I want to get into this uh, right right after but uh it influenced you essentially to write a book or uh it gave you the motivation or um knowledge in order to write this amazing book shattered ice yeah you're, it's true my wife and i have talked about that um kind of, yeah, you're bang on with that comment this all kind of came uh to be about two years ago in january of 2018 I talked about some of my mental health struggles. I suppressed that for, for my entire life. I'd call what I would call it a mental breakdown. It kind of fell apart in 2018 in January. Finally, at my wife's urging, and she had asked me for a few years to go get help. I finally did. But at that time, my boys were older and they were out of the house now. And my wife was working. I was home alone with this spiraling kind of mind. And even though I was going for therapy, I was still brand new and fresh into it. So I started writing this book to keep me busy for these hours where I was alone all day. And as I started writing it, it I turned it into a job. So um, I would drive my wife to work in the morning, come home, start right, typing up. And then I'd stop for lunch for 30 minutes and I'd go right back to it just like a job. And I'd pick her up after at the end of the day at five o'clock and then take the evening off. And I often keep going on weekends, but it turned, took me 18 months. So during that 18 months, while I was getting treatment, that was kind of part of my therapy, I would say. And it was kind of cathartic and uh, a real journey. And it allowed me to go back and really see, reflect on where I, the things I did that maybe were mistakes where I didn't ask for help. So from that mental health side, you really have to get help and you can't do it by yourself. And I saw all the points in my life where I tried to do it alone and how that just was not a good recipe. Yeah. That was kind of one of my questions is like, what goes into writing a book? Like, I'm sure, like you said, like it, it was almost like a job, like you probably had a, you know, did you have like any like writer's block or was it pretty like easy to just kind of, kind of, you know, just dig into your mind and write? I, uh, initially, I, the first three chapters were, I've really uh, had a nice flow to them. 
yeah. I kind of knew what I wanted to talk about because I talk about my early childhood days that we all have on outdoor rinks and that first arena, like I mentioned earlier, Queens Mount. But then you're, I, you're bang on too because I did hit a point uh, not too long after that where I did have what I would call, as you said, writer's block. I wrote the book myself, but I did have an editor all the way through. And one of the things she did for me is she would read it and then ask me questions along the way where she thought the story needed more depth or answers that she didn't understand as a reader. So she made me dig deep, deep that way. But as far as I mentioned to her about the writer's block, because yeah. there was a point where I think nothing was coming out of my head and it just wasn't there. And I, I mentioned to her, like, what should I do? I was getting a little, I wasn't worried, but I, it was the first time where there was nothing there to take to from my head to the paper, you know, to put on in the story. Yeah. And she told me to walk, go, go away for a couple of days, just leave it, take a couple of days off, do some, you know, go for a walk, just clear your head, just don't think about it. And I took her advice and it did work because when I came back, uh, I started to go again and I was saying to Keith earlier, there were certain stories that I knew were going to be in the book. I mean, the Probert story I just shared with you, I knew that would be in there. And so I used those as kind of the fence posts and I had to fill in around them through my career. Another story I always knew would be in there, it's an infamous story. My second year junior, we had a brawl at the uh, Maple Leaf Gardens back in those days. The Toronto Marlboros were in the uh, late-in division of the Ontario Hockey League, and they were in our division. So we used to play at Maple Leaf Gardens against the Marlies four times a year. We had a pregame brawl at Maple Leaf Gardens, which uh, I knew that story would be in there. Experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So but it was a joy. It was a joy. It turned out to be a joy to write the book. Um, and then I will say, when you're done, and you look at it, and you have this finished product, like it's. It's an incredible feeling. Definitely. So on the wrap up, I just wanted to ask you, how have you dealt with the book success um, ups and downs? Obviously, like it's pretty cool. You can buy it off of Amazon and everything. Did you know that was going to happen before you even published it? Or is that all unknown? And how have you received the success? Well, that's a good question. I, and I'll, what, I'll t what I will share with you is when I first started the book, when I was uh, going through some therapy for mental health issues I was struggling with. I only was writing it for my two sons because I felt some of the things I had dealt with mentally over the years, I I often hated talking about hockey, my my career. Like I love talking about other, like just hockey in general, but I didn't like talking about my career. So I think I, I felt like I robbed them of a lot of my stories. So I started writing it just for them. And I was going to just share it with them and let them each have a copy. And then as I got a little much deeper into it, and there was a point, I don't remember exactly when, but in that 18 month period, I thought I'm going, I'm publishing this. Like I felt really good about it. And I, I did my own research and realized that you can publish books on Amazon. It's been, Amazon has been great for me. And uh, I found a graphic designer for the cover. I found a, a company in Quebec who helped me, who did the, all the printing. And then I did, I, I went in and a couple people told me, you got to, uh, you know, pound the pavement. So I did that locally initially and uh, with the local bookstores in Waterloo, Kitchener, Paris, Woodstock, 
and uh, some of the, the local indigos. And, and then between that and Amazon, it just kind of took off. And it was uh, a bit humbling, I will say. I didn't really know what was going to happen. It was going to sell one copy, 10 copies. But um, it's, been, uh, it's been a really re rewarding experience. I bet, yeah. Well, that's definitely amazing, and we I think that's a perfect way to wrap the whole conversation up, but um, we really appreciate you coming on, and we're, we're wondering if you have any future plans to sort of say, or keeping that a secret for now? No, um, so I will say uh, last year, or this past January, uh, for Bell Let's Talk, I spoke at St. Clement's School down here, a small community down here, St. Clement's, Ontario. I spoke at the school on the Bell Let's Talk day. And my goal for next winter is to speak at more, like I live in Waterloo, so I grew up in Kitchener. I would love to start in Waterloo region. Mm -hmm. Speaking at schools, not, not only on uh, Bell Let's Talk, but throughout the school year, I've got that. I have to do, there's some vetting that has to happen with the school board. So I've got that process has started. And that's really my next goal. Um, you know, the book's out there and it's going to do its own thing now. I'm just letting, you know, it's going to let it fly. But yeah. I'd love to be a school uh, speaker in schools, especially elementary schools. I think if we start with younger people, we're going to be able to get rid of that stigma surrounded that surrounded uh, surrounds mental health. Mm -hmm. and I think starting in the schools is, is a great way. And the way I want to contribute also because I do coach, I coached uh, Pee Wee last year, going to major Adam this past next season. Or they call it a U11, I think. The names have all changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I like being around the young kids, and uh, I like going, seeing their uh, smiling faces, and if I can share my stories and maybe prepare, prepare them or educate them, I would be more than thrilled. Yeah, that's well, that's amazing. Too. Very humbling. Yeah. Thank you. And we we really appreciate you coming on, and it's been a blast. The stories have been amazing. Um, yeah, and we really hope to keep in touch and maybe we'll get something done down the line. But uh, again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me and uh, best of luck with uh, the podcast going forward. You guys are off to a great start. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.